0: Here's a fairly recent poem, which will be published shortly. It's called TV Weatherman, and it's dedicated to Percy Saltzman. (laughs) (coughs) He draws his fronts with a stroke of chalk across the satellite face of North America makes a ballet out of highs and lows, giving swift shape to all the winds and clouds. No one below escapes. No one is left out. Black ghetto and white suburb, flaming Detroit and fuming Quebec, swept under the onrush of flood rain or snowstorm or held sweltering in doldrums. A heat wave chorus in a thousand-mile curve sweeps upstage from California, led by a spin of tornadoes, while in the wings of Hudson Bay a band of cold furies is poised to wreak vengeance on the orange groves of Florida. Where now are the frontiers we defend? Where are the edges of our villages? Bold choreographer, be careful. Your dancing leaps across our loves and hates, ignores our barriers, making us doubt how long our walls will hold.
1: Welcome, friends. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. You are tuned into the Film, Literature, and the New World Order podcast for the month of June 2016. And whether you know it or not, you were just listening to the tones of F.R. Scott. That's Francis or Frank Reginald Scott, the Canadian poet of the 20th century, born in Quebec City in 1899, passed away in 1985, and that was T.V. Weatherman, which... It's, I think, a nice entree into the conversation for today's podcast, which, although it is the 36th edition of the FLNWO series, it is the first to deal specifically with the nexus of poetry and politics, so I thought a nice entree would be the works of FR Scott, and a nice entree into that entree is TV Weatherman, which exemplifies what I think the best poetry or political poetry at any rate can do which is take our everyday perceptions and understandings of the political order and turn them on their head, exactly as TV Weatherman does. These geopolitical boundaries and lines that we imagine are truly lines on a map, i.e. the satellite uh, face of North America, and the storm fronts that blow across one prairie will blow up across the plains and uh, across the mountains and across the lakes and across all of the, the geography out there. Uh, it's a good way, I think, of wrenching ourselves from our everyday understanding of the political order and what it means into a more uh, natural understanding of the world and one that questions these borders that we put up in our minds. So I thought that was a nice way of starting today's conversation and starting to see how poetry can interrogate and uh, overturn some of our perceptions. Now, let's get into F.R. Scott specifically. As I say, Francis Reginald Scott, born 1899, passed away 1985, but lived a remarkable life in between those dates. Uh, Just reading a sample of his biography from the Canadian Poetry Online Repository of the University of Toronto Libraries, link in the show notes as always, Uh, F.R. Scott was uh, studying law at McGill University from 1924 until 1926, and after his graduation, he was called to the bar in 1927 and then returned to McGill to teach in 1928. Um, By 1961, he had become dean of law and then retired from McGill in 1968. In 1952, he was Technical Aid Representative for the United Nations in Burma, and from 1963 to 1971, a member of the Royal Commission on Bilingualism and Biculturalism. Scott, who has contributed equally to Canadian law, literature, and politics in both official languages of Canada, was elected to the Royal Society of Canada in 1947, awarded the Lorne Pierce Medal for Distinguished Service to Canadian Literature in 1962, received a Molson Prize for Outstanding Achievement in the Arts, the Humanities, and the Social Sciences, in 1967 his career as an interpreter of quebec poetry culminated with a canada council translation prize for poems of french canada in 1977 his work as a social philosopher with a governor general's award for essays on the constitution aspects of canadian law and politics in 1977 and his life as a poet with a governor general's award for the collected poems of fr scott in 1981 and as comprehensive as that sounds, that really only begins to scratch the surface of F.R. Scott's Remarkable Life, which we will uh, hopefully get a little bit further under the surface uh, through the auspices of today's conversation, where we'll, we will be talking to perhaps F.R. Scott's greatest achievement, his son, Peter Dale Scott. Yes, that. Peter Dale Scott, who I'm sure does not need any introduction to my regular listeners. He has been a previous guest on this show and is, of course, renowned for being the foremost scholar in the English language of the phenomenon of deep politics. In fact, coining the term the deep politics in the deep state to talk about the way that politics really functions in the real world. And of course, again, he will be familiar to my listeners through some of his classic works like the road to nine 11 or, uh, the, the American deep state, wall street, big oil, and the attack on us democracy. All of that, of course, available at peterdale, scott.net. But, I'm sure there are at least, uh, there's, there will be a section of my audience that will be surprised to learn that not only is Peter Dale Scott not American, although he has adopted America as his country, he is Canadian by birth, and the son of a major poet slash constitutional lawyer slash scholar slash translator slash diplomat uh, if from Canada. Uh, but in fact, Peter Dale Scott is himself a poet having written Coming to Jakarta, who uh, no less a personage than former poet laureate Robert Haas called the most important political poem to appear in the English language in a very long time. High words of praise indeed. So someone who will obviously, I think, be a good uh, starting point for our conversation about poetry and politics, and probably well-positioned to talk about his father, F.R. Scott. Unfortunately... In a travesty of historical proportions, the gods of Skype did not fa- uh, smile favorably upon our conversation, and unfortunately, it has, well, not been lost to the digital ether, but that conversation is not usable. As a episode of this podcast. Now, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put up the raw and unedited audio of my conversation with Peter Dale Scott as a download. You can go to the uh, corbettreport.com, specifically the show notes for FLNW number 36, and you can download that conversation and listen to it. But I have to warn you that our our connection was not good, so there were repeated and constant and distracting dropouts uh, from Peter's audio. So you can listen to it and you can piece it together, but it does not make for an enjoyable listening experience. So hopefully that will provide something for scholars of a future era. But today we'll just have to make do with the bits and pieces of that conversation, which we can salvage along with my commentary. So let's start with Just a section of that interview where I started by asking Peter Dale Scott about his father and his father's influence on his life and his early development.
2: Yes, well, it's ironic that uh, in my early life, I I had this idea that the one thing I really wanted to do was to do something that was different from my father. And so that's why I became a diplomat. He was never a diplomat. That didn't work out very well for me. I didn't belong inside the government. And so I ended up being a professor, dabbled in poetry, uh, and also dabbled in politics. In other words, I became a kind of carbon copy of my father's career with the difference that my father in Canada was uh, was fighting the authorities at the end of his life. He was a Canadian icon. And uh, they celebrated his uh, 70th uh, anniversary with a big, big, big and all kinds of people came, including Pierre Trudeau, the prime minister who had been his student. Uh, I can't claim to have anything like that positioned in America, quite the opposite. But apart from that, our lives were quite similar, yes.
1: It's always interesting, isn't it, to think of these towering giants of academia or research or literature having once themselves been tiny children at the foot of their parents and sometimes in the shadow of their parents who themselves were towering giants as F.R. Scott was. So it is fascinating to get that perspective of Peter Dale Scott and to see how his life has in many ways followed the footsteps of his father, although with important differences. Well, let's turn back to the poetry, which is the core reason that we're here today. And we're going to turn to a reading of A Grain of Rice, published in Events and Signals by Ryerson Press in 1954. And this is a, well, this is going to be a reading by F.R. Scott himself from the same reading that we were listening to at the beginning of today's uh, episode. This is a reading that he gave at SGW University, better known as Concordia University, today, back in 1969 and it is an important recording it's got a couple of dozen of his poems that he reads through so I will uh, exhort you to check that out and I will of course put the link to spokenweb.ca where you can listen to this reading for yourself but right now we're going to listen to a reading of a grain of rice and I will only say by way of introduction that I think this is a nice compare and contrast with TV weatherman I think it makes in the end I think it makes a very similar point but in a very well, a very different way, a more serious tone. So let's listen to F.R. Scott reading A Grain of Rice.
0: A Grain of Rice, a poem I wrote in Burma, thinking of the Korean War, seeing the monsoon rains, reflecting on man and the universe in which he lives. A grain of rice. Such majestic rhythms and such tiny disturbances. The rain of the monsoon falls, an inescapable treasure. Hundreds of millions live only because of the certainty of this season, the turn of the wind. The frame of our human house rests on the motion of earth and of moon, the rise of continents, invasion of deserts, erosion of hills, the capping of ice. Today, while Europe tilted, drying the Baltic, I read of a battle between brothers in anguish. A flag moved a mile. And today, from a curled leaf cocoon, in the course of its rhythm, I saw the break of a shell, the creation of a great Asian moth, radiant, fragile, Incapable of not being born and trembling to live its brief moment. Religions build walls round our love, and science is equal of truth and of error. Yet always we find such ordered purpose in cell. And in galaxy, so great a glory in life thrust and mind range, such widening frontiers to draw out our longings, we grow to one world through enlargement
1: of wonder. What a beautifully evocative poem and... I don't know about you, but I think it would I would be hard-pressed to think of any, any lines of poetry that more perfectly encapsulate the futility and madness of war than Today, while Europe tilted, drying the Baltic, I read of a battle between brothers in anguish. A flag moved a mile. What a beautiful line, and how heartbreaking it is to think about the real-world relevance of that. And yet, again, like TV Weatherman, he wrenches us out of that our everyday understanding of the political events that are taking place by putting it back in the natural life cycle to looking at the asian moth and reflecting on this radiant fragile creature incapable of not being born and then thinking about how religions build walls around our love and science is equal of truth and of error and uh, he expands from there. I think it's a it's a beautifully constructed poem, and uh, and does have some classical allusions, as uh, Peter Dale Scott does mention in our conversation. So let's turn to Peter Dale Scott for his thoughts on a grain of rice.
2: The war he's talking about there, of course, is the Korean War, and as a Canadian, he's seeing it from afar, as he saw World War One from afar. Less so in the case of World War One. He served, uh, two were injured and the third was killed, and his father served as a, as a chaplain, a padre, and he too was injured. But um, he, it, it, there's a kind of optimism in his poetry that you don't find in many European poets. Uh, I would contrast him with Czeswat Milos, for example, who Described himself really as a man because he had seen such horrors in war. My father was never exposed to that kind of uh, shock from war, and the result was he had uh, a, a, an abiding optimism that we uh, reason and law will make for a better order. Uh, I consider a, a grain of rice. To be not only formal, but to even uh, reflect a certain reading of Horace, because the first, uh, there are three stanzas here which are completely Horatian. You have three longest lines, and then you end with a phrase like the turn of the wind, the cap. Of ice, a flag moved a mile to live its brief moment. Those are odonics. That's a Greek classical meter that was used in Latin as well, and it, it's not often that my father reflects poetry, but he does in this one. He's a very much, I think, always a melder of the old and the new, uh, the uh, conservative and the radical. In some ways, he was quite conservative, too. So.
1: Well, I hope we're starting to get an idea of the type of thinker and person that F.R. Scott was. As Peter Dale Scott points out, his father was always a milder of the old and the new, the radical and the conservative, always looking for that middle path and the third way. And that does give us some sort of insight into how to approach his work and his poetry. But we're going to take a very different tack now with a very different style of poetry that he was also known for. His satires, including his very political satires, we're going to talk about a poem that caught my eye immediately when I started looking into F.R. Scott's work, W.L.M.K., for initials that will have a lot of resonance for Canadians, but perhaps not for anyone else in the crowd. So, for those in the crowd who do not know who William Lyon Mackenzie King was, I asked Peter Dale Scott to explain.
2: He had a dramatic background. His grandfather had been a, a revolutionary in the early 20, 19th century, William Lyon Mackenzie, who's a name in Canadian history. But uh, William Lyon Mackenzie King, I think, worked for uh, John Diefenbaker before he came back and uh, became the leader of the Liberal Party for 29 years. For 27 years he was engaged in Canadian politics and for 22 of those 27 years he was the Prime Minister. There has been no other Prime Minister except maybe the first. Uh, Sir John MacDonald, who came close to that kind of tenure, the political system until in 1948 he was getting really, very old, and then in 1950 he died, and my father wrote this poem. and um, that, <clears throat> This is what he had to say about Mackenzie King.
1: And yes, although that clip seems to indicate that Peter Dale Scott is about to read the poem to us, I am afraid that that recitation too is lost in the sands of time, as unfortunately that part of the interview was basically unlistenable with significant dropouts. So... Although it would be amazing to have uh, the ability to present to you Peter Dale Scott reading his father's own poem, you're going to have to settle for James Corbett reading it. This is W.L.M.K. by F.R. Scott. How shall we speak of Canada, Mackenzie King dead? The mother's boy in the lonely room with his dog, his medium, and his ruins. He blunted us. We had no shape, because he never took sides, and no sides, because he never allowed them to take shape he skillfully avoided what was wrong without saying what was right, and never let his on-the-one hand know what his on-the-other hand was doing. The height of his ambition was to pile a parliamentary committee on a royal commission to have conscription if necessary, but not necessarily conscription, to let Parliament decide later. Postpone, postpone, abstain. Only one thread was certain. After World War I, business as usual. After World War II, orderly decontrol. Always, he led us back to where we were before. He seemed to be in the center because we had no center, no vision to pierce the smokescreen of his politics. Truly, he will be remembered whenever men honor ingenuity, ambiguity, inactivity, and political longevity. Let us raise up a temple to the cult of mediocrity. Do nothing by halves, which can be done by quarters. All right, an excellent, (laughs) an excellent closing line there. And what a wonderful, wonderful uh, poem that conveys completely in its uh, choice of words and the way that it unfolds what the speaker thinks about its subject and the the satire the 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 sarcasm the derision positively drips off of FR Scott's pen or at least it seems to that's certainly the way that i read it and i think there is obviously that element to this poem and that's obviously how it is uh, normally portrayed being collected for example in a collection called the eye of the needle satires sorties and sundries it is clearly seen in that satirical vein. But, interestingly, as Peter Dale Scott went on to say in our conversation, although there clearly is the satirical side to this poem, that's not the only side to this poem. And in fact, there is a way in which F.R. Scott was not merely brushing aside WLMK and his legacy, but in some ways recognizing that he was quintessentially Canadian.
2: Now, there's some, the parts that get quoted out of the poem are light and satirical. There's more to this poem than satire. I'm going to have to do it on the one hand and on the other hand. It's it's He's not just saying Canada would have been much better if we had had a Roosevelt, say, out of Mackenzie King. He believed that. But on the other hand, he, I think, really believed That Canada had a Mackenzie King as prime minister because it was so divided between East French and English, uh, old English and new immigrants that only a Mackenzie King could hold it together, and that's why I think it's there's only one quote, and I drew attention to the fact that it's a quote. Conscription, if necessary, but not necessarily conscription. Now, in World War I, when King was not the minister, we had somebody who wanted to bring Canada in behind the British as quickly as possible. And uh, in Quebec City, where my father was a teenager at the time, the result was a week of rioting in which 60 people were killed. And my father lived in the rectory of his grand, his father, the the the, the, the chaplain and the in charge of St Matthew's Rector Church. And from the rectory, he could look down and see the smoke and the shooting. And that my mother always said. Explained my father became a lawyer and believed in law. And in World War II, nobody wanted to see that happen again. And so, if there was ever an example of Mackenzie King's politics, it's the way he finessed the conscription issue. He did it right away and he said, Well, we'll have conscription, but nobody will have to go overseas. And the next thing was, Well, they can fight in the Aleutians. And they actually did go to the Aleutians, and that was. Luckily for his kind of politics, the the Japanese had already withdrawn from the Aleutians. So there were no casualties in the Aleutians. And then with D-Day, there was tremendous pressure. And so in 1944, almost the end of the war, we finally had a conscription in which people went over to Europe. And I think only 700 of the conscripts were actually in active duty in the front line. And I think my father didn't disapprove of that. I think he was very glad we didn't have a repeat of the Russian riots. So uh, under the surface, which is, uh, you know, a satir- satirical takedown of King, is a recognition that Canada has no so accident that somebody like King was its prime minister for 22 years.
1: My apologies once again for the poor audio quality, but I trust that you get the picture that Peter Dale Scott was painting there of his father's uh, stance when it came to William Lyne Mackenzie King, that it wasn't just that King was some inept and completely useless political figure. No, the very reason that he was able to maintain power in Canada for so long is because that was the kind of person Canadians gravitated to, and that was the kind of person that they wanted— at the helm, so to speak, during those very turbulent times. And so there is something to be said about the Canadian character itself as embodied in King and as encapsulated, slash satirized, slash exposed in F.R. Scott's W.L.M.K. Now, this all seems very straightforward, and I suppose we could continue along in this vein, continuing to explore various poems by F.R. Scott, but the conversation between myself and Peter Dale Scott started to take a very unexpected and fascinating turn at about this part, (laughs) which I certainly was not planning on, but was very interesting. And it had to do with that little nugget that I hope my more attentive listeners picked up when Peter Dale Scott was introducing William Lyon Mackenzie King. He noted in passing, that King had worked for John D. Rockefeller. And I thought that was interesting, so I wanted to follow up on that. And so I did point out, as you can find from, for example, Wikipedia on William Lyon Mackenzie King, in June 1914, John D. Rockefeller Jr. hired him, King, at the Rockefeller Foundation in New York City to head its new Department of Industrial Research. It paid $12,000 per year, compared to the meager $2,500 per year the Liberal Party was paying. He worked for the foundation until 1918, forming a close working association and friendship with Rockefeller, advising him through the turbulent period of the 1914 strike and Ludlow Massacre at a family-owned coal company in Colorado, which subsequently set the stage for a new era in labor management in America. King became one of the earliest expert practitioners in the emerging field of industrial relations. Very interesting. I think you'll agree. And so obviously this is something that I wanted to follow up on and start to at least broach the topic with the foremost scholar and researcher of deep politics in the deep state in America, in North America, in the world, and to ask him about the connection between deep politics and Canada and poetry and his father's poetry. And when we started exploring in that vein, Peter Dale Scott, he explained, for example, some of the deep political connections in Canada and how they tie into the the type of story that he tells about the American deep state. For example, the Bronfman family and making their fortune through uh, bootlegging and into America during the prohibition era and things of that sort. Then there were some interesting other nuggets that started to jump out. For example, one of the parts of F.R. Scott's biography that I did not read to you is the fact that F.R. Scott, in fact, attended Oxford University before he went to McGill to study law. And he was at Oxford on a Rhodes Scholarship, which of course will be familiar to listeners of the Corbett Report as the scholarship founded by Cecil Rhodes as part of his furtherance of the agenda that was exposed by Carol Quigley in Tragedy and Hope and other works uh, that he he wrote. Uh, and that, that vision that Rhodes had of Reforming a British Empire, and the the vision to which he devoted his fortune after he died, and which he created the Round Table, the Round Table Group, which Quigley explored, and which became the nexus of the Royal Institute for International Affairs and the Council on Foreign Relations, and that set, and so well Rhodes scholars have to at least raise an eyebrow amongst the switched-on set who know something about deep politics. So I thought that would be a very interesting connection to raise to Peter Dale Scott about his own father. And it was at that point that Peter Dale Scott volunteered some other interesting pieces of information about his father. For example, his father wrote for Foreign Affairs, the publication of The Council on Foreign Relations. And he was also a member of the Institute for Pacific Relations, an organization which, again, observant and attentive listeners of the corporate report will be familiar with. The IPR, the Institute for Pacific Relations, what is this group, why was it important, and why have we never heard of it in, uh, in terms of what, it was, what was uncovered about it during Senate investigations?
3: To me, the thing that's most important about the IPR is, again, it provides a beautiful example illustrated by Quigley how a small group of people can secretly create an institute the Institute of Pacific Relations and this is the network who created it so it's the same people nobody knows these people exist nobody knows these people are controlling it but still they create this institute that essentially controls Far East policy for the United States specifically with regard to China is is where the, the most of the uh you know the the problem uh, was uh, most of the issues with regard to the senate investigations and everything else there were a lot of people very disturbed about how this small group was able to affect the policy toward China but but anyway that's what kind of prompted a lot of it but the real key here the thing that's so important about it is the fact that he goes step by step through the process of how they're able to control if if you want to be a specialist, so like this is what you want to be as a specialist on the Far East. Well, guess what? If you want your work to be published, if you want to have some kind of academic position granted to you, if you want to have a job and be paid, if you want positions in the State Department, then you have to follow this line, this this uh, this line established by the IPR. Because if you don't, you will not get anywhere. So by controlling the flow of funds and controlling the consensus which they created behind the scenes secretly without anybody knowing it, the network was able to completely guide the the nation's foreign policy with regard to the Far East. And that, again, sounds like something that most people would think is a complete conspiracy theory. How How can this be possible that one group would be able to control all of these, all of this, these great intellectual minds. Well, the first thing that you might want to look for, when uh, when something is being blasted out through the megaphone of the establishment, is look for absolute consensus. Look for absolute consensus because that, in and of itself, says something about what's going on behind the scenes it is not impossible and the IPR is important because it shows perfectly you want to be published if you want to get grants if you want career advancement if you want an academic post or you want to work in the State Department this handful of people created the institution you have to do what they want you to do That's simple
1: all right, so let's review. We have F.R. Scott not only being a Rhodes Scholar, but someone who went on to write for Foreign Affairs, the publication of the Council on Foreign Relations, and worked for the Institute for Pacific Relations, set up by this same globalist jet set. And, oh, there was one other little tidbit. Perhaps you caught it when Peter was talking about his father. He noted that one of the illustrious students that uh, Professor F.R. Scott had during his time at McGill was none other than future Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau. And what's that famous thing, infamous thing, that Pierre Elliott Trudeau is known for having done in October of 1970 during the height of the FLQ crisis? Oh, that's right. Implementing the War Measures Act, effectively putting into place martial law in Canada. Now there is indication that the plan may actually have been enacted to deal with one of Canada's most famous national emergencies, the FLQ crisis in October 1970, in which Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau invoked the War Measures Act and implemented martial law to deal with a hostage crisis involving two government officials.
0: No, I, I still go back to the choice so that you, you have to make don't... in the kind of society that you yeah, live well, in. well, there's a lot of bleeding hearts around who just don't like to see people with helmets and guns. All I can say is uh, go on and bleed. But it's more important to keep law and order in this society than to uh, uh, be worried about uh, weak-kneed people
1: who uh, don't like the looks of, uh, of a soldier. At any government. cost?
0: At any cost? How far would you go with that? How far would you extend that?
1: Well, just watch me. Although long interpreted as insight into Trudeau's hubris, those words may have been more than merely posturing. The records indicate that the Montreal police had only 60 names on their list of FLQ sympathizers when the War Measures Act was invoked. Quebec's provincial police, however, did not think that 60 names sounded like enough. So the RCMP provided hundreds more, and within hours of the War Measures Act implementation, over 500 people were under arrest for supposed association with the FLQ, including many with communist associations in their background, but no link whatsoever to the FLQ. These names are presumed to have been supplied from the profunk list. That's right. The implementation of martial law in Canada, troops on the streets rounding up 500 people on the flimsiest of pretenses, all but 62 of them released without even being charged. Yes. And any guesses who advised Pierre Elliott Trudeau to implement the War Measures Act?
2: And uh, Pierre Trudeau was my father's law student, uh, was now the prime minister. He came down to Montreal and said to my father, what do we do? And my father said, invoke the War Measures Act. They created a suspension of law, rather like what happened in this country, except that in the case of Canada, it only lasted for a very few days, and in America, I'm afraid the suspension of law is still there. Um, But uh, my father, who had always been a civil libertarian, uh, some people said, how could he have said that to Pierre Trudeau? My my mother, because my mother, immediately they rounded up almost 500 French Canadian intellectuals, uh, poets. Uh, My father knew some of them. My mother knew more of them. And uh, she, uh, all she could think, of to like the conscription riots of 1916 and i think that's true he did not want to see that
1: now as you can tell by this point in the conversation unfortunately the connection was becoming less and less reliable the dropouts more and more frequent and it was becoming more and more difficult to hear what peter was actually saying but I, again i think you get the gist that it was his father, who actually advised Pierre Elliott Trudeau to invoke the War Measures Act, effectively suspending law in Canada, particularly ironic given that if F.R. Scott is known best for anything, it is probably for his work as a constitutional lawyer in Canada and someone who was a vociferous civil libertarian, and yet he was the one who advised Pierre Trudeau to implement the War Measures Act at that time during the FLQ crisis. Exceptionally interesting, made a million times more interesting by the fact that Peter Dale Scott is, if anyone understands and knows and follows his work, one of the things that he has really brought to the table in the post-911 world is his work on continuity of government operations, the planning for of which has been going on for decades, and the implementation of which happened on nine eleven. the suspension, really, of the government that we know, the, the, the formal... Uh, handing of the reins over to the shadow government. This is something that Peter Dale Scott has specifically been working on and researching. And his father was the person who did something v- not quite the equivalent, but something very parallel in Canada back in 1970. And I had no idea but at the time that we started this conversation that this was the case. So, of course... I had to try to draw Peter Dale Scott out a little bit more on this and how this has affected and influenced his own work on continuity of governments and operations planning.
2: It certainly influenced my relationship with my father because I was one of the people who disagreed with him. It didn't matter much because I was here in Berkeley, but, um, uh, and yet, uh, I don't know that I am all that different from my father, really, because uh, everything I've attributed to him as a belief, and I believe myself. I'm very more different from my... my I'm much more committed to nonviolence as a, an ideology than my father. No, I was once, once we started having the weather... Then, and locally here in Berkeley, overthrowing, overturning police cars and setting fire to them. getting uh, comfortable being out there in the protests. Uh, the early stages of tear gas, I was prepared to throw the tear gas back at the police. The later stages, I went uh, on both sides. I mean, the government's behavior was getting worse, but the anti-war movement's behavior was also getting worse. So, and there I was, I always said I'm a Canadian, but uh, on this show I'll say I was my father's son. You have to have a balance between law and order. And, you know, the, some of the things that were said then were crazy. And that's why I didn't buy into Occupy, because as I looked at Occupy, the, the, it was the right thought, it was the right time, and in the early stages it was something that had to be done. But it sort of turned its back, I think, on the center and was willing to go along with whoever turned up in the park. And those kind of people were never going to be the significant alternative that could change America. Someday we need something like Occupy that can reach to people who have jobs, who are working and yet are ready at a crucial moment to put their bodies on the line. Uh, Occupy didn't reach those people, didn't try to reach those people. And the other thing, my other criticism of Occupy is so nonviolent. I feel you have to have leadership in a movement and you have to have leadership which imposes a discipline of nonviolence which it can enforce with monitors. I. I was never arrested in the Anroid movement. I was a monitor over and over and over again, and um, I believe that there is a very fruitful tradition because of the Vietnam War is active now all over the world. You have uh, peace uh, peace enforces of various descriptions I'm working we try to do it. Uh, in the Sudan, although it was not very successful there, but this is all new, it's all exciting, and uh, people shouldn't say that uh, American politics died with 9-11 and now we just have uh, the forces of saying, uh, you'll never again see an anti-war organized to stop that, nip that in the bud. You have to organize differently. All I can say is there are people who are thinking about these problems and they're doing it. So I, like my father, am an optimist. And uh, I can't say I'm an optimist every day of the week, but um, I, you know, if you chart the American, history, the, the, the Vietnam War, the war movement, had never been anything like it before. And uh, the Iraq anti-war movement—it failed to stop the war, but come together quite quickly and create a powerful movement—are still there. And uh, I want to see the same kind of orderly movement towards a violent revolution.
1: All right, my my sincere apologies once again for the lack of audio quality there. Unfortunately, as I say, the connection was getting worse and worse as the call went on, so towards the end it was very difficult to hear much of what Peter was saying. But again, I include that there for the record and for posterity, and obviously there is a very, very rich vein to be explored there with Peter Dale Scott. So let me take this opportunity to advise any... Of my listeners in California or who can make it to Berkeley, if you had the opportunity to interview Peter in person, I know that he's interested in talking about this, and I think there's obviously more. That can and should be said about these very interesting connections between the foremost scholar of deep politics in the world, I would say, and his father, who seemed to be involved in, to some extent in deep politics in the early 20th century in Canada. That's a fascinating connection, and it, it, it relates directly to both of their works and their poetry, I think. So, again, very interesting and something that needs to be explored further. So that leaves us in an interesting position. I think when it comes to the comments section of this edition of Film Literature in the New World Order, I hope you will join me in the comments at CorbettReport.com. There's a few different things we could be discussing there. First of all, of course, if there is anyone who has read... FR Scott's poetry before or is coming to it for the first time and would like to leave your thoughts on his poetry, of course, that is welcomed and encouraged. Secondly, for anyone who is familiar with Peterdale Scott's own poetry, if you want to leave any thoughts or ideas about uh coming to Jakarta, and uh or if you just want to use this opportunity to explore the website, I'm going to include it in the show notes for this FLNWO podcast where uh, his, his uh, Peter Dale Scott and his student put together a fascinating uh, exploration of that entire poem that includes Peter Dale Scott reading it out section by section and then analyzing each section as they go and talking about the writing of that poem. So that's an excellent and interesting study guide, and obviously that's something that could be a candidate for a future edition of this series. So if anyone wants to pre-jump the gun on that and uh, start... Uh, Commenting on that, they're more than welcome. And of course, the third order of business would be to talk about this deep state connection and the deep politics of FR Scott and how that relates to Peter Dale Scott. And I suppose the the obvious knee jerk thing would be to say, well, obviously this means Peter Dale Scott is a limited hangout psyop, and he's controlled, and look at his family connections. But I think this really does raise some very interesting connect questions about the nature of the deep state, and that it is not so cartoonish a facade as we sometimes portray it as, where everyone who is involved in any way with any of these organizations is 100% an evil-minded globalist who wants to conquer the world, perhaps there is some nuance to that story. And a couple of the questions that we could posit here. Firstly, does everyone who is involved in all of these various organizations, are they consciously and actively aware of the agenda that they're serving? Or can they be Unwitting pawns who may uh, have points of accord with certain ideologies, or, or secondly, does our view of what the deep state and its aims are change uh, over time? Not only just as our own personal understanding changes, but as that deep political uh, organization and structure starts to change and morph and grow stronger. Uh, uh, Just as an example. You might look at the subhead of uh, Peter Dale Scott's most recent uh, nonfiction work, Dallas 63, the first deep state revolt against the White House. Well, if the first deep state revolt against the White House was in 1963, then people living and working and and acting before nineteen sixty three might not have had an idea of exactly how maleficent the the deep state really could be, and these organizations that they were working for uh, again i'm just throwing these out there I want people to to think about this and to and what does these what do these connections mean do they mean anything and what what can this tell us about um the fact that now we have again the foremost scholar of deep politics probably in the entire world being the son of someone who is intimately connected to those deep politics it's a fascinating thing and something that well i hope it would be very nice if I had the chance to explore in person with Peter Dale Scott one day, and hopefully we'll get the chance to do that, or at the very least get a better connection somehow or other. But I'm going to have to leave it there for today. those That's where we're going to leave it, on that very strange note. Um, again, this took a very unexpected turn, but you never know what you're going to find when you start scratching the surface of these deep political uh, events, and even when you start scratching it, seemingly unrelated areas like poetry. So hopefully there will be more poetry in the future of film literature in the New World Order. And as is our custom here, towards the end of every podcast, we turn back to the comments of the previous episode to read through them. And you might remember that in episode 35 of this podcast on Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, I did ask people about examples of something like The Jungle that led very specifically a work of fiction that led very specifically to tangible and concrete real world actions uh in in the real world um in the jungles case as i went through in that podcast it led to the creation ultimately of the what became the federal uh the sorry the food and drug administration and uh to the uh the meat inspection laws that were passed in the wake of that book and as I noted at the time, JFK led directly to the uh, uh, the Assassination Records Review Board, which uncovered Operation Northwoods. Those were two examples I threw out. There were some other examples of people uh, in the uh, comment section throwing out ideas, uh, such as P. Kokesh uh, throwing out Sophie's Choice or The Diary of Anne Frank. Uh, we had Kat uh, suggesting China Syndrome, Silkro- Silkwood, Aaron Brokovich, The Insider and It's a Wonderful Life, and uh, Steves talking about Top Gun and how Top Gun affected military recruitment. That's actually a really good example. Um, we had a, a interesting back and forth between uh, uh, Philip and Mark KP in the comment section about uh, labor labor unionization and uh, and how that Im- uh, impacts on what uh, Sinclair was writing about. And we had a very interesting. A comment from Voltaic Dude that reads in part, uh, one should sort out the various mixed-up issues here. Business principles, food aesthetics, food safety, political realities. Business principles revolve around honest, full disclosure. Beef should be beef. Should that exclude miscellaneous beef parts? It should definitely exclude horsemead. But that doesn't mean horse meat is bad. It's a matter of opinion. Steak tartare is especially delicious when made of fresh, sushi-grade horse meat, generally leaner than beef, so it gets tough when cooked. And to some, it's healthier for that same reason. What about GMO foods? I want to avoid them. In fact, see them banned. A pretty extreme standard. Would legislation actually ensure a ban in the marketplace? That's another question. Corruption is the issue, and it seems there's no magical solution. No system is incorruptible. Seems it's always a constant struggle. All right. And he goes on from there. Uh, All of the comments, very interesting. I hope you will read through them and I hope you will leave your comments on this edition of Film Literature New World Order. Of course, that's at CorbettReport.com. So you can follow along there and I hope you do so. And as always, let's end with the assignment of the homework. For next time, you're going to be watching... Are you ready for this? Rambo 3. (laughs) Have fun, folks. And I'll see you next month. But before i go we'll end today i'll turn it up back the microphone back over to fr scott for another reading uh, from sgw university back in 1969 of a poem that i thought was well particularly well written and i don't have much to add to it or to say about it i'm just going to end with fr scott that does it for this month thanks for tuning in talk to you again soon And finally,
0: a poem called A l'ange avant-gardien. It seems strange. I was brought up to believe there was a guardian angel, an ange gardien, looking after me. So you felt a little more secure as you know there are several places in this province called L'Ange Gardien so then I thought of the Avant the L'Ange Avant Gardien Stevens had the necessary angel which to him was reality many people have angels but this challenging avant-garde angel, always asking you to be in the avant-garde, seems to me what I was thinking about. <clears throat> Allange avant-garde. We must leave the handrails and the Ariadne threads, the psychiatrists, and all the apron strings, and take a whole new country for our own. Of course we are neurotic. We are everything. Guilt is the backstage of our innocent play. To us, normal and abnormal, are two sides of a road. We shall not fare too well on this journey. Our food and shelter are not easy to find in the Salon des Refusés, the little mags of our friends. But it is you, rebellious angel, you we trust, astride the culture's feet planted in heaven and hell. You guard the making. Never what's made and paid